0: Guys, tonight we're going to finish Acts chapter 4. Um, I don't know if you were picked up on this yet, but uh, we are preaching through every verse of Acts. We've started with Acts one, and now we're starting tonight with Acts chapter 4 verse 32. Uh, and I just told you a little fib, I didn't mean to. We're going to stop at verse 35 and then we're going to pick up 36 Next week, and move on into Acts chapter 5. But pretty much, we're kind of summing up Acts chapter 4 tonight. I want you to remember let's go back and walk back through it. Um, Christ appeared to his disciples, um, there was about 120 of them. That soon exploded into several thousand. Um, there was a healing of a lame man, which uh, gave an opportunity for more preaching of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. Uh, and Peter and John uh, saw even more, many, many more thousands of people joining the church in belief in Jesus Christ after persecution. They were told not to preach not the resurrection in, or, or, or do anything in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, you decide whether it's right for us to listen to you or to God We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. And then last week we talked about uh, when they were released, they didn't whine and they didn't cry and they didn't complain and they didn't lobby in Congress. They didn't try to change the persecution. All they prayed for was boldness to continue doing what what Jesus had told them to do. And that was to go and make disciples of all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. And to be His witnesses all over the world. They didn't cry and whine about how unfair it was that the Sanhedrin was trying to keep them from preaching the name of Jesus. They just prayed for more boldness to do it regardless of what they were telling them to do. And i talked about how we can we can... We can have the encouragement of knowing that we're a part of something. We're we're a part of something that is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so whenever we're persecuted for, for preaching the name of Jesus, for living a life that is countercultural, we can come here and be among believers and be identified with one another. And then and then we we talked uh, last night. About uh, not last night but last week how how w- what happened when they when they were focused on the mission and they were they were completely surrendered to their to their God and their master, he continued to bless it. He answered their prayer for boldness they prayed that that they would have even more boldness to preach the gospel, and God gave it to them, and they go out and now in verse thirty two of Acts chapter four. It says, Now a large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord. That's exactly what they were told not to do. But they're doing. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. And we're just going to talk about these few verses right here, and I'm not going to preach a very long sermon. The first thing I want you to see is that there is unity in the body of Christ. Now, this is what it says. Now, the large group of those who believe, that's, that's, a, that's an identifier, believing. And later you'll see what, what the church was made of, um, what the characteristics of those who believe you'll, you'll see what those characteristics of believers were as we walk through this. But we're not talking about everybody who was around. We're not talking about everybody who came to church. We're talking about specifically and exclusively those who truly believed. There were identifiers, there were distinguishers among the the believers that made them different from everyone else who was around, just like there should be within us. Because have you ever gotten around with someone who truly is a believer and they 're just they 're just bible believing spirit filled people, and they may disagree on a few things, but they never want to make a big deal about it they just want to they just want to major on the important things and and man, they get excited about talking about god and 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 being in the presence of other believers that 's that 's what was going on here. You had some folks. Who, who were, were those who believed and they were of one heart and one mind. And I want to suggest to you tonight that that unity only occurs in the church through humility and love. Humility and love. Let's talk about humility first. It's being humble, right? Right? Don't you love it whenever people use the word to, like, to define the word? What does humility mean? It means being humble. Well, of course it does. This is what humility... This this is how you you come to a point of humility. Proper self-awareness. Knowing who you are. Knowing that, that the Bible calls you a sinner. Knowing that the Bible calls you a child of wrath. Knowing that the Bible says that the wages for your sin is death. Knowing that, that even in your best efforts to be holy and righteous, you are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God, before Christ. Knowing that there is no self-righteous deed or no law that you can adhere to that is going to earn you any merit with God. There's absolutely nothing you can do. We are all, as, as Brendan Manning says, we are all equally Unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. We are beggars at the door of God's mercy. We are not great in and of ourselves. We have great capacities because we're made in the image of a great God, but but left to ourselves, we'll use those on selfish endeavors. And we'll, we'll squander this life in the experience that we've been given on ourselves and leave absolutely nothing of a legacy of any meaning or purpose behind. The Bible calls our life just a vapor in the grand scheme of, of history. God looks down on His creation and He says, Who are you to counsel me? Should the clay say to the potter, I wish that you would have made me this way? What I'm trying to get you to see here is that without Christ, there's really not anything very special about you. You're you're one of billions of sinners, just like all the rest. And see, one of the things that will keep us from truly falling on Christ and truly depending on the Lord for salvation is this thought that we are good. That we are are great and grand and and worthy of praise and 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 we'll soak up all the worship and we'll draw all the attention that we can to ourselves when when the Bible says that 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 God will share His glory with no one else. And so, a proper self awareness to come to the foot of God's mercy and say, as the man in, in Matthew did. Whenever uh, we're in the gospel, whenever the the Pharisee was on his soapbox and he was praying and he was saying, Look, God, thank you so much that I'm not like that man over there, the tax collector. I tithe on what I make and I pray all these times and I do the right sacrifices. Look how great I am. And then the one who had proper self-awareness, the one who truly was justified that day, couldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven because he knew he was such a sinner. And he beat in his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. He was humble before God. He had no boasting in himself to do. There's another author, I think it was Brenning Manning, actually. He says, I am lovely only because he loves me. Like my identity, my self-worth, everything that is good about me has to be wrapped up in the identity of Jesus Christ. And if it's not, then you're making an idol out of yourself. Girls, you should beware of dating any boy who lets you make a god out of him. Guys, you should beware of dating any girl that lets you make a goddess out of her. Just beware. So humility is the result of proper self-awareness. And I'm not trying to tear you down. I'm just trying to give you a realistic look at at how we are simply in our humanity in light of a holy God. We are fallen. We are desperate. We are hopeless apart from Christ. But see, whenever we do knock on the door of God's mercy and it's, it's open to us, and then that mercy is poured on us, and that grace is poured on us, and God no longer says you're a child of wrath, you're a child of the king, you're, you're a prince and a princess, you are glorified, you are sanctified, you are justified, you are redeemed, you are made somebody. Your name is written down in a book that will never, ever, ever go out of existence. You, you, are, you are given an identity in Jesus Christ as someone who matters. You are an eternal being. You are made new. Your old things, your old sins, your old ways are crushed under the weight of the cross. And you are, you are brought forth as a new creation, lived to live a, uh, born to live a glorious life in the identity of Jesus Christ. When you, when you finally come to a point of self-awareness and you really realize that I really am unentitled to this mercy. God owes me nothing. But all throughout the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of how God has been pouring out His grace on His, on His creation ever since the fall, even before the fall, even during the fall. God was acting graciously. Even though He has to be just, He's still gracious. He's still merciful. And then whenever we come to the point in our lives to where we see that we have racked up sin, we have racked up offenses towards God, whenever whenever we come to realize that we are an offense to God before we We give our lives to Jesus. We are a walking offense to God if we're living in in denial and rebellion of the life that Jesus died to give us, that relationship. But then whenever we see that God, in an instant, will erase those debts. He'll erase that history. He'll take those skeletons and He'll finally bury them instead of making you keep them in the closet. And He'll forget about them. And He'll say, He'll say, Arise, child. Abide in Me. Abide. Live in My love. And then He does something amazing. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. Literally, if you think about that, literally, the God that created everything out of nothing, the God who raised himself out of the dead fills us with the same power and boldness that he possesses. That we are, we are living in the fullness of His grace. And that at Acts 1.8 says that we have received power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And Jesus promised that those who believe will be, will be given that comforter, that counselor, that guide, and that power will be ours. And, and we don't have to walk with our head down anymore. And we don't have to, to walk feeling like the world is so unfair. We know that God is going to work all things out for the good of those who love Him or are called according to His purpose. So that proper self-awareness leads us to be humble before God. And if you're humble before God, you have to realize that you're humble before people as well. That we're all unentitled beggars. That we're all worthless without Christ. That we're all completely sinful and lost without His grace and His love. And so we're all equal. Us, sitting in this room in Jackson, Tennessee, are equal in our sins to those on the other side of the world who... who, who have never heard of Christ or have heard of Christ and, and, and have denied him. We we are his creation and we should humbly respect every human being on this planet as equally unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. We are only privileged to have lived in this country, in this part of the country, to where the Bible has been been put before you and the gospel has been put before you your whole lives, you should be praising God instead of setting on this entitlement, self-righteous, somehow this is owed to me mentality. As if it makes you better than anyone else. Because whenever we are humble through self-awareness, We're filled with that love. And that humility brings forth love. And so you can't have unity in a church without humility and love. You can't have love without humility. You can't have humility without knowing who you are and who God is. Unity is what we see in verse 32. Now, the large group of those who believe were of one heart and mind. One heart and mind, really. You've got to think, there's maybe upwards of 20,000 people in Jerusalem now who are believers. The large group. They stopped counting. There were too many to count. They were of one heart and one mind. And you say, well, how is that possible? We've got 400 and we can't even get that many people on board. Heck, we've got, what, 40 in here tonight? I bet we've got a bunch of differing opinions on on how a lot of things in this church should go. How in the world did they get 20,000 people to be of one heart and one mind? I'll tell you how. Are you ready? Humility and love. Humility and love. The spreading of the gospel And the glorification of God is the result of unity. See, the only reason that the church was able to take off and to progress as well as it did was because of their humility and love which led to unity. And when you're unified and you're not squabbling over this and that, you can be focused on the gospel. And you can be focused on glorifying God. When you refuse to be caught up on the trivial... When you refuse to micro, or when you refuse to to let people who have been appointed to do certain things do them, you're you're actually holding up the gospel. You're, You're being distracted from what you are supposed to do, and you're distracting other people from what they're supposed to do. We should be humble. We should love one another. We should be unified, because that's the only way we can accomplish our mission as a church. Let's look at the next verse. It says, and the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Great grace. You know what that means? Favor. Favor was on them. They had God's blessing. They, they had God's approval. They had God's... They, they had God's green light to go and do what He had called them to do. And that He, he, he they had the assurance that God was going to empower them to do it. And, and be successful. This church that we're reading about was experiencing God's favor. They experienced this great grace through unity and boldness in sharing the gospel. You see it right there. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was on all of them. So we see in 32, they were a large group who were unified in humility and love. And they were preaching the gospel with great power. And God's favor was on them. You see how simple that is? Do you you see how simple, absolutely simple it is... For, for us to just see the church as it was two thousand years ago, a, a group of maybe 20,000 people who were of one heart and one mind, they were humble, they loved one another, they, they were unified, they boldly and powerfully shared the, the gospel of the resurrected Lord Jesus, and some somehow, they had favor. It was that simple. It was that simple. Great grace, listen to this, is measured by the church's ability to meet the needs of the people. Look at this. It says, and the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them for there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them because they were humble and loving and unified and sharing the gospel and God's favor was on them and there was not a needy person among them. We should never measure our success according to the size or quality of our buildings or the amount in our bank accounts or the number of people on our rolls. That's not what the measure of a good church is. should should be made by. This, This is how you measure the success of a church. It's measured by the number of needs that are being met. You see how that's an outward focused church? That we're only successful if we're doing things for people, if we're meeting people's needs if we're providing for the, the hungry, if we're, if we're helping people in financial distress, if we have people who own businesses or giving jobs to people who need jobs, if we're making sure that kids have food and coats and shoes, we're, we're making sure that the widows are not lonely and forgotten, we're making sure that whenever one of our own house burns down, they don't need anything. Because we are going to take care of them. Because that's who we are. When somebody's sick, or when somebody's husband or wife or mother or father dies, there's not a moment that they feel completely alone and without encouragement because we're meeting needs. Because we're not so focused on ourselves and what's not being done for us. Because we're not so so stuck on on how how we should be treated and, and how, how things should go because we think they should go that way. We are completely outward thinking people, completely focused on the well-being of everyone else. And you know what? If everybody would get a hold of that, you would be taken care of. You could trust that your church would completely fulfill the needs that you have as they arise. They didn't have a single... Of 20,000 people, they didn't have a single person, a needy person among them. Guys, listen to this. The church is a hospital for the sick. And a hospital is only as good as the treatment and healing it offers to patients. A hospital is only as good as, it is a, as, it, as it's able... To help people. I mean, who wants to go into a hospital where nobody comes out alive? Who wants to go into a hospital and get treatment for something that never works? Um, I, I, I'm not trying to say anything negative about our hospital, but when I first got here, you guys remember I broke my ankle playing basketball with y'all? If you don't remember, let me set up the scene. I was driving the lane, and um, I had launched off and was getting ready to slam it like Dwight Howard style. And Haley Kirkland got underneath me, and I kind of twisted, and I hit my head on the, d- the the backboard or the rim. I can't remember. I was pretty high up there, and then I, I turned around and I landed and just you know broke my ankle, and so. It was fantastic, but uh, that's not how it went at all. I actually, I think I like ran into Haley and stepped on her foot and tripped and hit the wall, and it was... <laughs> but anyway, so I go... Okay, so I'm like, you know, it really hurts. It's kind of swollen. I can't really walk on it. I'll just sleep on it. Well, some people talk some sense into me, and I ended up going to the hospital. And I get to the hospital... And I kind of hobble up. I didn't expect anybody to come out and like, you know, valet me, park me and like wheel me in or anything. But I walk up to to the first desk there and there's about three or four folks standing around. And I'm obviously in pain. And I'm kind of like limping, like more than a limp. I'm like just kind of shuffling because I can't put any pressure on my right leg. And, And I go to the desk and I'm like, excuse me, I've never been here before and I'm really hurt. And I need to know where the emergency room is. And if you know what I'm talking about, the emergency room is like a football field away down a hall. And the people standing at the counter look at me and they're like, oh, it's down that way. And then they go back to their conversation. And so I take like a few more little steps and I turn around and I'm like, I'm sorry to bother you in a hospital as a hurt person. But do you think I could get a wheelchair and maybe get some help down there? And so they're like, oh yeah, sure. They were really nice. They were like, oh yeah, sure. And so they go around the little corner and they give me a wheelchair and they bring it back and they set me down in it and they're like, it's down there. <laughs> they don't even wheel me down there. And so then I get down there and, and um, I, it, the wait wasn't long. You know, there was something interesting on the little four inch television screen that they have up there in the waiting room. Um, and so then I go back you know, I see the doctor. They do the x-rays. He says, yeah, you broke this part of your ankle, and here's the boot, and that'll be $9,000. And, you know, here's your medicine for your um, pain pills. And and our friend Emily had come because Leslie wasn't here yet. And so Emily came, and she was just going to make sure that I was okay. And and so um, they give me some crutches, and, and I get in the car, and I'm just thinking, like, like, I don't know if I want to come back to this hospital because, like, I'm obviously hurt. And I've had many, many good experiences with the hospital since then. But this first impression was that the people at that desk, those, now, once I got past those people, everyone was very caring. It was very good service. You know, everything was great. But that first impression was that people really don't care that I'm here and that I'm hurting and that I'm needy. And they're only going to do the bare minimum to not be inconvenienced from their conversation by me. And I want to tell you guys, we have people walking into our church and our Sunday schools and our youth group who are hurting and needy and they, they, they need us to be inconvenienced by them. They need us to be outward thinking. They need us to see them first and to go to them first and to make them feel welcome first. They need us to get outside of ourselves and to meet their needs. That's why they came here. That's why you're here. You want people to meet your needs, don't you? Well, the measure you give is the measure you'll get back. Trust me. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Needs were met through unity, humility, and love. These are the, the, these are the defining marks which make up the group of those who truly believe. We have a good church, and we have a good hospital, by the way. We have a good church, though. But I don't ever want us to get so comfortable with our good church that when someone walks in these doors, they're not greeted with a smile and a handshake and asked, is there anything I can do to help you this morning? Do you need to find a Sunday school class? I mean, who did you come here with? Do you know anybody? Are you just visiting? Are, are you new to the area? Would you like any information? Would you like, would you like my seat? I have to confess, I got mad at the deals Sunday night. <laughs> they stole my pew. And I, I had that awkward moment where I was standing and they were sitting where I sat and there were no other spots because I was trying to save seats for Leslie and Cherry, and then I was just kind of like, "This is awkward." You know, you're not supposed to be there. But a lot of times we look at at, at newcomers as as though they don't they're not supposed to be here. And there's something wrong with that, because we are all equally unentitled beggars. If If you don't view yourself as a beggar at the door of God's mercy, I think you might need need a little reality check. He is good and He is gracious and He freely gives to those who ask. But what we've been given freely by His grace, we have no business withholding from other people. When they come here, we view them as our guests. We view them as 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 our as our um, our friends and we welcome them. Um, like I said we have a good church but I, I want I want this group especially because sometimes when we're together and we get so comfortable with one another and we get these little inside jokes and we get things you know kind of running along pretty good we sometimes forget that the why we're here is to bring sick people to the hospital, to bring sinners to the gospel. So do that. Do that. It's, it's, it's not up to me to grow. It's not my responsibility to grow this ministry. You, you realize that I know maybe 40 of you, and I know maybe one or two of each of your friends, but you know dozens if not hundreds of people that I'll never meet. Family members and friends and teammates, co-workers. Share the gospel. Invite them to come and be a part of what's going on in God's body. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You and I love You. I pray, Lord, for these students. I pray that You would fill us with boldness. I pray that You would unify us. God, humble us. Give us a love for one another that, that we need so that we can meet the needs of our community. Father, I give you the praise and the glory for the way this church has has welcomed and and cared for me and how it, it welcomes and cares for so many. But God, I pray that you would not help us to become comfortable. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the blind spots of our selfishness and, and our complacency and, and God, our, our exclusivity when people new come to our church. I pray, God, that you would... You would start a a movement in this ministry, God, to where we are on task and on mission for going and telling. And Lord, that whenever, whenever we go and tell, we live it as well, God, that we are unified not only with one another, but we're unified in integrity in the gospel, that we're living what we're saying. And Father, I just pray that You would fill us with the boldness of the Holy Spirit to do just that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.